We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This is Greg Olson, and I'm thrilled to introduce my new podcast, TE1. TE1 will chronicle a 60-year evolution of the tight end position, from its origins as an obscure, overlooked blocking role to the versatile superstar position that it is today. I'll explore the evolution of the position through conversations with some of the all-time game-changing tight ends. And just like the incredible tight ends we sit down with on my new show, the Chevy Silverado is in a league of its own. This truck is all about grit, strength, and dependability. The same attributes it takes to be a tight end. Welcome to episode 215 of the Barcelona Podcast, home to the most influential voices in the FC Barcelona community, brought to you by the Blue Wire Podcast Network. I'm Dan Hilton, and today I have the pleasure of being joined by a historian of politics, pop culture, and football. She's an author, a co-host of the Burn It All Down podcast, and most regularly, a university professor, Brenda Elsie. Thanks so much for joining me today. Thanks for having me. Well, as you know, and you're known to kick a little bit butt on Twitter, so as we know, Twitter isn't real life, though, and the echo chamber that exists as fans <laughs> of a football club can be kind. They can have us lose sight of the bigger picture, so Professor Elsie is here today to discuss the messy business, the transfer market, women's football, and none of that with the usual blood ground of bias that you can expect from Frances and I here on the pod. So we're going to start with Messi today. The number one argument I keep seeing, Professor, about Messi leaving revolves solely around his happiness. It seems like I, I heard recently that a transfer can be boiled down to football, finances, and family. And it seems like the finances didn't matter so much and his family didn't want to leave. But Unlike the whole thing about Messi's happiness, you were critical of Messi's inability to leave this summer, but your critique had nothing to do with the player. What do you make of the whole Messi mess? <laughs> well, it's Messi, um, and it's one of the best puns ever in football history uh, between Messiah and Messi. Messi has provided us all kinds of joyous linguistic turns. Um, it's not about Messi. It's the transfer market, which starts in the 1920s and really takes off after professionalization of football in the 1930s, is one that is the club to club, confederation to confederation, federation to federation, and about FIFA. And so essentially after Neymar's departure, which was for a record 260 some odd million dollars, Barcelona wanted to make sure that it got paid if one of its star players left. And so the $800 million or 700 million euros, however that breaks down, 
doesn't go to messy. And for some reason, I feel like most people don't understand that. I don't know if that's just me, Dan. Do you think most people, I feel like most people think it's like some of it goes to the player. Well, I, I think that it's understood for Barcelona. And I think it's actually almost a recent thing that Kool-Aid's have, or fans of the club have learned that the release clause in Spain, it, the reason it's so different, and Neymar was kind of the introduction to this idea that in, uh, in the UK in particular, that the clubs do have some power over that contract without the release clause. But in Spain, the law is that if the release clause is paid in full by the club or in Neymar's case, by the buying club plus the player, but basically adding their own funds to it, that that player is then released and completely free to negotiate with that new club. And again, that was in the Neymar case. And so Barcelona in particular in the last few seasons, and fans have started to notice this, have raised their release clauses because they don't want an instance like a Luis Figo to happen again. Because, I, I mean, it, it, it's, this could have been Luis Figo 2.0, but in this case, obviously not Real Madrid, which is why there is so much, we'll, we'll say, bad memories about how that release clause was exploded and all those things. So I do think there's actually a difference between Spain and the rest of these countries that don't have a release clause that if, if it's paid in full, then the player is free to go. But with Messi, obviously Messi is one player that they never expected to leave. And, and so that's what made this, you almost put an asterisk next to it because Iniesta, by the time his contract was, it wasn't even up. He just had the autonomy to leave when he wanted because he was a club legend. And so I think a lot of fans are just basically hurt at the idea that Messi doesn't have that autonomy, that, that 800 million uh, or 700 million euro release clause, if anything, it really was just a gesture. And the fact that the club and the Bartomeu in particular, the board, did not hold up their end of the bargain, if you will, and let this legend leave under his own autonomy, that this release clause actually was a real thing that the, the board doubled down on. It was almost a symbolic thing, but I mean, when it comes down to it, it's business. That's all it is, right? It really is truly just a business. I mean, I, I think, you know, that's what they're they're telling on themselves, that it's just a business, but it's a business that's been built on the idea that it's more than a club, that it's more than a business. And so I think it's pretty tragic uh, for Barcelona fans to see the club maybe like like confirm what our worst suspicions are, which is that the, the, the greatest player of all time who's given 20 years of his life to Barcelona, who's done nothing but be supportive of the city, you know, local charities, community work, and the club itself can't leave when he wants to. Um, and when they haven't built, you know, they haven't made changes that any player would want. This isn't this isn't a hard ask. He doesn't have many years left in this kind of form, at least. And so I, I think it's sad to watch from afar. At the same time, I don't believe the kind of... Um, I mean, Messi's a particular figure and he doesn't give you much to work on in terms of what he wants personally and what he doesn't. I'm surprised to see how vocal he's been about this. So we can't really second guess the fact that he definitely wanted to leave. I think there's probably things they could have done to make him happier and, and, and maybe not, you know, so desperate to leave as to go to the media and say it, which he's never really done. The context of his family not wanting to leave, he was saying... I wanted to leave so much. I convinced my family who hadn't wanted to leave to leave. Right. So, you know, so in that sense, um, the family thing certainly didn't make him stay. The thing that made him stay is, is six months really worth that kind of money? And his, his options were incredibly limited. Maybe Manchester City could have done it, but under financial fair play, they've already, they were suspended. They were reinstated. It's not clear they really could have even done it. 
I want to go back to the Neymar point real quick because you're starting to run through some of the things we're going to talk about financial fair play in a minute. I, I think the thing that no one seems to know about all this is just how desperate a club like Barcelona and, and actually behind them La Liga, with La Liga losing their largest commercial asset as well. And this all happening in the time of a pandemic, I think is also important to note because it will have a great effect. And I'm not just talking the messy thing, but the whole transfer market will be affected by this global pandemic. And we already brought up Neymar's move to PSG in 2017. We've said it about a thousand times here on the show that the system was exposed at that moment to having, I mean, fatal flaws in the way that it was set up and that rich, rich clubs. And we're, we are really just talking about the ones that are, I mean, basically owned by nation states that, and this is no sympathy for bad decision-making on Barca's part, but Barca then were bringing in players with the, the funds they, they got from Neymar that had no hope of living up to those transfer fees. It was impossible because the market, again, had been exposed to having a, a severe imbalance. And I would ask about the pandemic, because that seems to be the excuse of Bartomeu and a, a lot of other presidents. It's not just Bartomeu, but a lot of other presidents or, or club leadership or owners have keep saying this pandemic is something that I, I know we say it, that it exists, but what it's going to do financially to a lot of these clubs. Do you think this pandemic... It, with it, we could see some kind of correction to the transfer market, or do you think that the gap between the haves and the have-nots will just get larger? Well, the tra- the transfer market was supposed to bring more equity, right? I mean, that's the argument that's made that it's going to spread things around through solidarity payments, actually. That's mm-hmm. the way they justified it. The transfer market probably violates every labor law in every nation that it operates in. And those labor laws have never been consulted. It also gives a cut to the federations, the confederations and FIFA, because you need transfer certificates. You need all of this kind of stuff within those transfer clauses, if you will, or release clauses. There are usually lots of subcontracts that we'll never know about. We found out through WikiLeaks, you know, I don't know (laughs) if it was so much, you know, football leaks or whatever, but we learned far more through that. Um, than we ever did from transparency. So it's really one of those things that's hard to, to know. And since the Federation and FIFA have allowed this to go on without much transparency or regulation, there's a whole lot we don't know. And at least in when, when transfer fees started really becoming astronomical and more kind of um, restrictive, what people in football governance were arguing was, well, there's this solidarity payment system and the solidarity payment system will mean that the clubs who have you know, helped kind of foster this talent between the ages of 12 and 21 will receive some of whatever transfer fee when the player goes to these other clubs. And the problem with that is that it kind of encourages exploitation of these players at a really young age. Because they can, you know, the clubs in Brazil know that they can export players. They export about 800 players a year on the books, many more probably off of the books to China in particular right now. And it, it, it kind of gives them this dream or illusion of, of you know, of producing these players and, and getting money for their clubs that way. And then it also, on, in the same turn, it, there's an advantage to a place like Barcelona for going after a Messi at 12 and 13, and so in this case, Newell's old boys uh, would only get a very, very small piece of whatever solidarity payment is out there. So at this point, there's very little justification. We know it doesn't exist in the way it was supposed to. And there's, there's really no reason to, to go for these transfer fees. I mean, FIFA and the federations really need to 
really need to take a look at these because it's not so much like, oh, feel sorry for Messi has such a hard life. Of course he doesn't. But it's it's the transfer fees that you don't see and the clauses that you don't see and the ways in which they are applied to, you know, 16 and 17 year olds that are coming out of Brazil and being transferred to China and they don't know what they're getting into and it's very hard to get out of. You've counted on restaurants, now they're counting on you. And while their dining rooms may be closed, they're still open for delivery with DoorDash. DoorDash is the app that brings you the food you're craving, right to your door. Ordering is easy. Open the DoorDash app, choose what you want to eat, and your food will be left safely outside your door with a new contactless delivery drop-off setting. Choose from your favorite national restaurants like Chipotle, Wendy's, and the Cheesecake Factory. Many of your favorite local restaurants are still open for delivery too. Just open the DoorDash app, select your favorite local spot, and your food is on the way. And I can say from personal experience, in this pandemic, I live in a really busy place in uh, right outside New York City. And so DoorDash and getting things delivered have been really important. And for me, going in, and I had Chipotle last week, so going into Chipotle and getting it myself, putting it in the bag, and bringing it onto my own, I know DoorDash can't help me with this, but when I took it out, and this is a sad story, not unrelated to DoorDash, but I took it out of the bag, the lid wound up slipping off, and then I got, obviously, some Chipotle stuff all over my pants. And again, that is not the fault of DoorDash, because what they do is they put their stuff neatly in the bag, they fold up the bag nice and tidy, they put it on your front door, and you have little work to do. And so if you wind up spilling out yourself like me, well, I guess that's on you. So right now, our listeners can get $5 off and zero delivery fees on their first order of $15 or more when you download the DoorDash app and enter code BLUEWIRE. That's $5 off your order and zero delivery fees on your first order when you download the DoorDash app in the App Store and enter code BLUEWIRE. Don't forget, that's code BLUEWIRE for $5 off your first order with DoorDash. Sunday, Sunday, Sundays are coming back in the NFL. With NFLSundayTicket.tv, you can stream every live, out-of-market NFL game every Sunday afternoon on your favorite devices, plus Red Zone and DirecTV Fantasy Zone channels. Never miss your favorite teams and favorite players. No matter where you live, NFLSundayTicket.tv is your key to the most glorious Sundays ever. Use the promo code BLUEWIRE at checkout to get 15% off your subscription. Visit NFLSundayTicket.tv and use promo code BLUEWIRE. In the... The book Soccernomics, Simon Cooper, and Stefan Szymanski, they wrote all about how it's no surprise that it's very difficult, especially those going to the Premier League, for Brazilians to go right from Brazil, and then they pop over to the Premier League. And if there isn't already some kind of either Portuguese or Brazilian contingent at the clubs they go to, it's more likely that those players wind up at least taking a few years to figure it out. But in the Premier League, you don't have a few months or a few years to figure it out. If you're, if you're a young Brazilian player of 19 years old and you're bought from, your, from a club in Brazil for, uh, let's say, 35 to 40 million euros, well, you have to hit the ground running or else you're France and now you've got a different situation and now you've got to learn another language. And uh, yeah, I think we just forget that language matters and location matters and the amount of family that these players are able to bring that, as I said, to go back to the idea of football, finance, and, and family, that we do forget all those things about uh, the fact that they're people. And it's easy even to make light of, again, the current Barcelona news right now is that Luis Suarez, there's jokes about him taking his, his Italian test to uh, potentially get a move to Juventus. But again, all that is said that he's an established player in the European game and he'll be fine. He can get translators and he can get whatever he needs to make that move. But of course, that is not afforded to young players. And Barca also knows this well because of the FIFA ban where the was seven to nine players that a few years ago and, and everything at La Masia since Messi came has changed. And that's, I think, some of the big irony about Messi's move is that that move is illegal now and, and, won't, ha- and won't happen. So signing a young Argentine on a napkin 
in 2000, 2001, and then having him come over, just it, it wouldn't be happening. But I do want to go back to the financial fair play while we're at it. Uh, FIFA is supposed to have financial fair play at their disposal, but we have some, as, as you mentioned, inconsistencies. And I also want to have a reminder, too, that FFP was established so that clubs wouldn't put themselves into long-term financial trouble in the pursuit of success. But we only ever hear about it in regards to major clubs who could be in violation of the spending limits, which it, it, I, wouldn't, it, I wouldn't call it irony at all, but uh, it's, it's a sad, we'll say, catalyst of FFP kind of failing in, I guess, what it was supposed to do. But do you think, can FFP actually help to keep things fair, or will it continue to seemingly exist when it needs to? And I think better yet, what kind of reform is necessary to actually help clubs survive? Because I mean, we are seeing whether it was Wigan in the UK, where you have ownership groups come in through seedy ways, and these clubs are, are gutted from the inside out. And yet FFP isn't FIFA, they're not related to any of that. That just happens kind of in the ether. And FFP is only ever in regards to the Man City, PSG, Real Madrid, Barcelona, just to make sure that they don't go over their spending limits. And if they do, then like Chelsea, they get a little punished. Okay, well, FFP, first of all, is just UEFA, right? So so when we talk about FIFA, you know, governing different confederations, it doesn't really, it doesn't apply to anything outside of Europe. And, you know, it's funny because I think it was really sort of generated not only, now it's the Premier League seems to be the place where it really gets focused on. And, there, and there's been with Man City, a lot of kind of anti-immigrant sentiment that comes with that. And the idea that these are Middle Eastern investors that are coming in and sort of, you know, um, being vultures on this British tradition. And so, you know, you always have to be very careful how it's applied to, to whom it's applied and what the kind of discourse is around it. Um, I think to myself of, of Juventus and the Cristiano Ronaldo trade and how Italians were losing so much money and basically dipping into fiat to pay his transfer fee and the workers at Fiat trying to learn about financial fair play to see if they could sue the yeah. club, um, which is just, you know, which is just so, you know, 21st century. And um, and so it, it, it was supposed to do that. I think that, of course, it has like a wonderful spirit behind it. Again, part of the problem is that financial fair play runs into uh, legislation, national legislation, and it gets really complicated. And so I think it was scaled down or toned down, you know, around 2014, 2015, because of the number of lawsuits that clubs were immediately involved in. And at that point, I mean, UEFA just came out, Plantini just came out and admitted, we're not really going to implement this in the way that we thought. Mm -hmm. And since then, it seems that it's just sort of an axiom like, the people who would be punished by financial fair play are the very people who have the power to get out of being punished by financial fair play. I don't see a big interest and a big powerhouse supporting it vis-a-vis -vis those who would be violating it, if that makes any sense. No, it does. And we were bringing up about uh, Juventus and Barcelona. And again, <laughs> we're kind of tiptoeing around that when we were speaking about the Man Cities and the PSGs of the world in UEFA. But we seem to see this the, the adage or this, this idea that clubs are currently needing to balance the books, particularly in this time of pandemic, but whether it's Liverpool, Juventus, and Barcelona, those two in particular keep coming up. And the Artur for Pionic deal, obviously, we don't know how much 
But I, the sense is, and even from journalists within Barcelona, have kind of uh, both sides have admitted that that deal was was made not because Arthur was a talent that needed to be out of Barcelona, but you see how much younger he is than Pjanic. But it had nothing to do with the transfer or the quality of the play or anything. It had a lot to do with the fact that by making that deal now for the amounts that they did, they're able to spread out the, the, the price of those contracts over a number of years. And so instead of having to eat Arthur's contract in the moment, they were able to spread out the contract of Pjanic and that will say help balance the books. Again, that's the kind of the motto, the t- catch-all phrase that we keep using. Now, we know that none of these clubs are actually in trouble of going into administration or anything like that. But what do you think journalists do mean when they say that clubs like Juventus and Barcelona are, are broke? And that, again, it's a shorthand that you see on social media. But obviously, we know that that's not really the, to the definition of the word broke. I don't know what they're talking about. I mean, that's what I'll just say. I, I understand that journalists need access and that their relationship with PR um, people in in clubs and and they're very steeped in a in a world and in a landscape where they get a ton of information and they're so important so i'm in no way denigrating journalists but i just literally don't know what they're talking about Mm -hmm. i mean la liga revenues have grown tremendously um most of the financial fair play is actually not about contracts but about tv rights and so they spend all their time on these players which i guess makes a better story or you know, something like that and on player transfers. And that's that's actually not even the majority of where the slippage comes in. The slippage, because contracts, you know, you can find those, but it seems that the slippage, at least in the case of like Man City, has to do a lot with um, commercial rights, you know, with TV rights, with broadcasts, stuff like that. Um, so I, I don't understand uh, when they say that they're broke I, I feel like they're repeating something that they're told a lot, if that makes sense, or they're, yeah. they're maybe too quick to believe the, the spokesman that they're, the, you know, they're always in, conference, in conferences. They're always, you know, taking down what everybody's saying. I, I think it might be a matter of maybe they need a little bit stronger of questioning. I think broke is not the word. I think uh, corrupt and indebted is usually the word. <laughs> yeah, and it seems to be that's, I mean, that's why there's a vote of confidence going against Bartomeu, the Barcelona yeah. president. And it does obviously come to the vein of football failure, but it, it also comes on the back of once the football failure has been realized at Barcelona, then they also see a financial failure. And uh, Bartomeu in particular was brought in as the establishment candidate after Sandra Rosell, who served time in prison for his financial misgivings. Yeah. So it's it's no surprise there. And I, it is kind of cyclical in that we, we immediately kind of get back to Messi because of that. They, as the Liga, I, I believe it's 2023 or 2024, depending on the location. But when they go to renegotiate their television rights deal, not knowing how long their prized commercial asset in Lionel Messi will be around, uh, that does affect those negotiations. And we see leagues around the world. I mean, that's why the Premier League is able to explode in the way that it has in terms of at least um, North American fame in that they deal with NBC Sports. Just It seemed to work out for everybody. And there was a, just a huge amount of revenue now coming in the Premier League. And that's more important than almost anything else. And I mean, while in Spain, Barcelona and Real Madrid, you're not going to ever give them a compliment or give them plaudits for the amount that they share uh, with, in revenue with the other clubs in Spain. However, Barca and Real Madrid 
uh, basically since the financial crisis of 2008, have been uh, more willing, we'll say, not to a point that is in any way healthy for the, the leagues and Spanish football at large, but they've been more willing to share some of that revenue just in the hopes of keeping the, we'll, we'll say the base of, when you have a relegation and promotion system, the base really is at the bottom. But I, I do want to pivot now to a reason why Barca and Real Madrid pay inflated numbers not only in transfers, but with an obsession about finding the, the next great Brazilian star. And uh, you are obviously an expert in South American football in particular. I, I know Chile, but for uh, South America, we've seen a few success stories about these Brazilian stars, but the majority of those buys never stuck at either Barca or Real Madrid. And also a reminder that Barca have drastically cut down their scouting department in South America going forward. But I, I think we have reason to believe the broken pipeline, it's not a pipeline, it's a broken pipeline, will continue to try to bear fruit. But why Brazil and not Argentina, Chile, Uruguay, or Colombia, do you think, for Barca and Real Madrid? Um, it has to do with agents uh, and the power of certain Portuguese agents that, that broker these deals. It's not just about scouting. Um, that pipeline is also greased by um, several very, and Simon Cooper and Stefan Szymanski also talk about this. Um, there's a number of Portuguese agents that have formed a pretty, strong um, contingent or cohort of people that broker these deals and essentially have relationships with the academies at Flamengo and Fluminense. Um, Argentines and Botafogo, actually. Um, and so what you see is, um, you know, relying on the people you know and going back to the networks that you know. I feel as though Argentina has never sort of not one particular group of agents have dominated. And so I think, I think it's, it's a little bit different. And Argentine football is maybe, I mean, it's certainly the academy system is smaller than in Brazil. So there's, there's fewer options if you're going to look for, you know, new players. I, I also have the sense that the academy system is less draconian. The Flamengo, Fluminense, the Santos, um, those boys are really young and living there all the time and under very little scrutiny. And we saw the fire that killed, you know, eight boys from that academy two years ago in Flamengo, and still no one has been punished for that. So I feel like it's sort of just one step more exploitative than the Argentine system and thus um, has a pool of labor re really readily available for export. Yeah, that does make sense. And again, things have changed a bit where, and it, it is also due to the high profile nature of these moves, but now these Brazilian players, if they come to Real Madrid or Barcelona, they have to be able to sign a professional contract. So uh, depending on certain players, it's between 16 and 18. But we do see a lot more 18 to 19, 20, where these players might even be a little bit closer to being established. Because again, the, even those one or two to three years matter, where if a 16-year-old is making a move, that's much different than a 20-year-old making the move. But even that, you remember that a 20-year-old is still just 20 years old. And I, I think, uh, I'm not going to go on a tangent about Ansu Fadi, but uh, he really has been <laughs> in the news a lot this, this week. But, I mean, it's, it's, it is an odd thing that we continue to remind ourselves that he's there legally. His family moved in the way they did from Sevilla, from Guinea-Bissau, when he was very, very young. But he has been raised in Spain. He's comfortable in Spain. He speaks Spanish. And he's been at La Masia since, since he was a tween, a, a preteen. And so he is very comfortable there, but he is still just about to be 18 in, in a few weeks. And it's almost unfathomable to understand that 18 is still so, so young to be doing the things that he's doing. And 
those talents, they wind up being very special, but uh, it, is a, it is a slippery slope as well. But thankfully for Ansu Fati, he does have the support of, again, being raised in Spain, being able to speak the Spanish language, being comfortable in La Masia. And I mean, we know that the club also completely inoculates him from every bit of outside voice just because of the dangers of what it is to be a teenage prodigy, for sure. But well, yeah, I mean, it, and if he is, I mean, I don't know. <laughs> I know it's a Barcelona podcast. I mean, part of the problem is we don't know also what that does over the life of career of players. Yeah. Um, to start with that degree of training and that degree of intensity at what particular age. In the case of Messi, okay, it works out. He has a particular style of play. Not everybody, almost no one is going to be able to necessarily um, have that longevity when they start that young. And just to say, I mean, again, it's Jorge Mendez and these other Portuguese agents who work uh, closely with both Real Madrid and Barcelona. Um, most of the Brazilian players have no problem with Spanish. You know, it's, it's, it's fairly, and certainly not the Argentines, Uruguayans, Chileans, you know. Uh, but the but the issue comes more in, you know, the dislocation in Spain, there's also a degree of, of racism, uh, particularly towards uh, South Americans and uh, Afro-Brazilians have experienced that. And it's a real serious issue. And it's also those, as you spoke about before, those secondary and, and trades, right? Where, yeah, okay, they might be in Spain. And then as soon as they're able, the clubs sort of unload them to other places that they weren't expecting. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Let's end the show by making one more pivot here. And I really appreciate your time and accommodating to all of our different moves along this path. But I, I want to end our conversation by talking about the women's game. And after the Barca Femini made the Champions League final last year, I, I myself was very excited to see that finally you could see that the, the investment that was being made at, in particular Barcelona, an investment into the women's team was leading to on-field success. But it's not just Barca or the powerhouses like Lyon and to some degree Wolfsburg as well. A ton of clubs known for their men's first teams are putting more resources into their women's team. Yet it still seems like that road is still so, so long for actual buy-in, marketing, et cetera, et cetera. What do you think the next five years of women's club football? I mean, we know the international game and some of the pitfalls there. Uh, I mean, the reason you and I are actually having this to to raise the hood a little bit, the reason why we're having this conversation is because we were able to connect again after a few years over uh, so with the Brazilian Federation saying that they were going to play their women, pay their women uh, the same thing as the men, which is for Brazilian football, for those who might not know the history about the inner, the FA there, it's just, it, it's insane to me that, that we actually even got there, right? But I, I, don't, I wouldn't say that club football, it's still a little bit behind. And do you think there's a, again, a good scenario here? And what does the not so good scenario look like, you think, for women's club football? I mean, so unfortunately, what we see is the growth in the United States and Europe. And um, I say unfortunately, not because I'm not happy about the growth there, but it's really lopsided in terms of there is no real professional contract in Latin America. And once again, you know, women players are also being exported to these places. And it's you know, it's kind of frustrating that they don't have the choice to even, even the possibility to make a living, um, you know, where they're from. You saw the Japanese league replaced by the dub, this new W league in Japan. It was the oldest women's league. So this is sort of a global phenomenon. And COVID, the problem with COVID is it provides 
these leagues an excuse um, that they're very happy to use about doing things like scheduling. You see, if you know that you really want to sort of invest and promote your women's team, then you need to schedule them first when you're coming back. You need to prioritize them because to, to understand a gender imbalance and to correct that isn't to give women the same, but to give women more. And that's, that's what like they just, it seems that football governance and any federation just doesn't seem to get. Like if you can even give them up to the same, they, it's like they want to be crowned like the biggest feminist allies in the world. And you're like, that's actually not how inequity is, is solved. Women should be the priority for coming back. So instead you saw, you know, the Super League canceled and then the Premier League back. And, and that's pretty frustrating, right? Um, the Bundesliga really led the way uh, in the comeback and really put their women's team first. Um, it's, it's good for everyone to see Real Madrid start a women's team finally, but of course it's in the season where, you know, we're, we're having all of these global pandemic problems, but it will be good going forward. I think for, you know, that rivalry to be reenacted in the women's game as well. Because at the moment, the Barca Femini and Atletico Madrid, those are the two powerhouses in Spain. Yeah. But as you mentioned in the, the Spanish first division, that Barcelona would just awarded the, the trophy. I mean, they were, I believe it was nine points up anyway. Uh, yeah. with with some points uh, some games some matches to go but Barcelona was just awarded that and then they were able to focus on the Champions League but the downside is and I think that's a more incredible point about the Spanish League is that not only did they not come back but they haven't even released the schedule yet and so the soonest that the Barca Femini could play an official match again is midway through November which is just in, in it's an incredible amount of time off when it seems like the rest of the football machine continues to work but as I said as far as the on-field quality I've I'm happy about where that's going. I'm happy about the investment that Barcelona mm -hmm. is making. But I think one thing you're mm -hmm. going to immediately run into, though, is the parity where Lyon, we see they constantly are winning the Champions League. And it seems like with the women's game, it could be very quickly, again, the haves and the have-nots. And my fear mm -hmm. for Spanish women's football is that you're going to see Barcelona, Atletico, and Levante, actually, uh, is a pretty good team as well. But Real Madrid, mm -hmm. they're going to be the only ones who have a chance at getting that trophy. And it winds up being, again, a, a lack of parity, a lack of uh, support for any of the other clubs at the bottom and you could see a ton of women's teams pop up and then fold and pop up and fold based on the finances of the men's version mm -hmm. yeah well i mean in that sense you run a risk i mean there's always a risk all the criticisms that you have of men's football it's very risky then to decide that these should be the purveyors of women's football it's 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 not clear so you want yeah. them to invest but then they come with all of the kind of corruption and patriarchal structures and all the things that you criticize about the men's game, they come with that, all the good things and the bad things. And, you know, there's a big question about that in, in South America, in Argentina, um, for example, you know, do the top women's team in Argentina, the dominant, dominant team is Boca Juniors. And, you know, if only Boca and River, and I mean, in this case, there's, there, there's also, um, a few other contenders, but I mean, really what you're looking at is really lopsided and that's disappointing. So I think anytime there's gains in women's football, you want to stop and ask, you know, what, what is this really a gain or is it just something that men have? So it seems good. 
Well, yeah, and, and we also talk about TV rights, where I was, I, this is a credit to CBS, where everyone was frustrated that in the States here, uh, United States, that CBS All Access had the Champions League for the men's version. They were frustrated about having done that. But I said, well, once you've paid that fee, then you might as well also watch the Women's Champions League, which is also on CBS All Access. And so having the the same access to both the men's and women's game, I mean, my my thinking has always been that if you put it on, we see the numbers the ratings with the world, the women's world cup that if you put it on, people will watch. And so it really yeah. is almost, it is a sad thing to say, but it's the reason why you and I are talking about this on the podcast where I look at our numbers. And so you kind of got to shove it in people's faces and say, here, you will enjoy this. I promise Just you have to give it a chance. <laughs> and so this is why, this is why we, end we end the show with this, but professor, I want to thank you so much again. I've taken enough of your time. So I want to thank you for joining the show. Remember you can listen to her on burn it all down. She also has a new book from 2019, Footballera, A History of Women and Sports in Latin America. So check all that out in the show notes and also find a lot of her other work and writing. So, Professor, thanks so much for the time. Thanks, Dan. And thanks to you, the listeners, for tapping in again. You can tap in your app and check out the show notes to subscribe. You can find us on social media, too. We're on Twitter, at the Barcelona Pod, or at HiltonD13 for me. And on Instagram, at the Barcelona Pod. Our closed Facebook group is tvpod.link backslash group for deeper dives and discussions and all that. You can also help us out on Patreon to continue making these shows at tvpod.link backslash Patreon. We're also on YouTube at the Barcelona Podcast, so check us out there and hit that subscription button. So thanks so much for listening to the Barcelona Podcast. Until next time, we'll talk to you soon. Forza Barca. The wait is finally over. Football is back, and that is American football for all of you Barcelona fans. You might not be at a game this year, but you can still be in on the action at Bet Online. Bet Online is going the extra mile to make sure you can get in on every possible chance to win this season. From game spreads and totals to team, player, and coaching props, Bet Online gives you more options to wager than anywhere else. You can get in on their season opening bonuses today and start off wagering on wins, division, and championship futures all day, every day. Head to Bet Online today and take advantage of all the great sign-up bonuses. Don't forget to use promo code BlueWire at BetOnline.ag. That's BlueWire, all one word. Bet Online, your online sportsbook experts.